Well, you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be there in a minute. I know we have a business meeting tonight, so we'll be brief. There are a couple of other announcements I'd like to make um, before we look into James 1. We'll get there in uh, due course. In case you haven't noticed, there is a uh, quite the artifact on the table in the lobby out there. Uh, there's a man dressed in a good humor ice cream outfit in front of his good humor truck uh, delivering ice cream from years ago. I'm told that the man in that picture is about 19 years of age when that picture is taken. And in case you're wondering, it's John Quater in front of his good humor ice cream truck. Uh, was that in New York, perhaps, Mr. Quater? Was that in New York, perhaps? Or? In Chicago. All right. So you're going to want to see the picture of Mr. Clater, 19, in Chicago, delivering good humor ice cream. Maybe he's a French <laughs> uh, So uh, somebody brought that in. I have my suspicions of who that is, but uh, uh, you'll want to look at that. Um, just by way of announcement tonight, um, every summer, uh, really it begins in uh, late fall through the holiday season, uh, we have... Uh, folks, uh, typically young folks, college age, that look to do summer ministries. Uh, this is something they do uh, typically in the summertime between semesters at school. They're engaged in various kinds of work, uh, missions work, camp work, that kind of thing. And we as a church want to encourage that and encourage young people to do that. And so uh, when we get word of that or uh, we advertise just a little bit, then uh, those young people fill out what's called a presentation application. Uh, it's for summer missions, and it's reviewed by the missions committee. Uh, they turn that in uh, by the end of February. And uh, it's just a few questions that ask them what's the nature of their work, um, what they'll be doing, uh, how uh, this opportunity came to them, uh, what they're expecting God to do as they serve the Lord in this way. And so we do that each year. The uh, young people fill out the application. We review it. And um, then typically we kind of have an offering to order to help with some of the needs that they have. Um, this year we had three applications returned to us. Uh, Joya Marinelli, who is uh, serving at the Wilds of North Carolina this summer. Uh, Audrey Marinelli, who will be at the Wilds of New England and Caleb Fagan, who will be serving on a mission team west. It's a, a team of seven young men that will be ministering in uh, churches, small churches in the Mountain West region, Mormon country, think that. And uh, they'll be serving there for a month, ministering in those various churches. And so these three have returned a summer application. It's been approved by the mission uh, committee. Typically at that point, we come to the church, we say, here are the applicants, uh, we'd like to receive an offering to see if we can help with some of their needs. Uh, but because you all were so generous last year when we did this, we had more than needed. Uh, we had actually a surplus of about $1,800 from last year. And uh, that amount was enough to help these three this year. It's the policy that we cover just half of their cost. Uh, not all of it. We want them to uh, exercise some faith in that way and uh, even have some buy-in themselves. and so. Uh, but of that $1,800 that was left over, uh, we don't need to receive an offering for them. We can cover it with that $1,800. But I wanted you to be aware of that as a congregation. 
Typically, I like to have them come and say a little bit about what they're going to do. Uh, and I've heard from all of them that they're going to be available in May. So when they get home in May, prior to their going out on their summer ministries, we're going to schedule a Sunday evening where you can hear from them directly about what they will be doing, what they will be uh, engaged in. But I uh, just wanted you to be aware of that, uh, that that is, uh, has taken place. And uh, so we will not be having an offering for that. Um, in addition, I was mentioned this morning, Pastor Andrew mentioned uh, an English camp that is taking place in Vienna, Austria. And um, Stan uh, Shelton had reached out to us, oh, maybe a couple of months ago now, maybe a little longer. And uh, this is something that we've done in the past. Uh, it was several years ago. We had, I think, four uh, ladies that went out and helped them with an English camp. It's, it's a summer outreach for them in Vienna where the young people like to learn English and practice English, and they use it as a way to make contacts with people in their community. Uh, they can teach them English, obviously, from English speakers, and just the conversation aspect of that is helpful. But the English lessons that they do are all gospel-centric, and uh, they have to do with introducing them to the truth of, of the gospel. And so the Sheltons have done this for years. Uh, they've had other churches come and help. And a few months ago, Stan reached out and said, hey, would you guys be able to help us in this endeavor um, he said, we have limited space and an opportunity to be able to accommodate people here, but here's kind of uh, what we're looking for, who we're looking for, and uh, would you be able to help with that? So we discussed it as a committee, uh, put our heads together, and so as Andrew mentioned this morning, we have eight individuals from our church that are going to uh, conduct this evangelistic English camp in Vienna in July, and uh, that will take place um, Again, we're not going to have an offering for that. I think we did last time when we had uh, some folks go just to try to help out with that. Everyone that's going on the trip is uh, fully committed to covering their own cost on this. Uh, but if the Lord would put it on your heart to help in any way, uh, you're certainly welcome to do so. You could designate that in the offering, and it will be divided up among those eight individuals. But uh, we'll be giving you updates along the way as to how that is going, ways to be planning, and a ways that we can be a blessing to our missionaries in Vienna, Austria. And so I wanted to make you aware of that. If you have further questions on that, you can see me uh, or folks on the missions committee, and we'll be glad to discuss that with you. All right, you're in James chapter 1. We're going to get there in just a minute, as I said. Uh, what I'd like to do tonight is kind of follow up on uh, our message this morning. Um, we looked at the temptation of Christ this morning and uh, what those temptations entailed particularly, and noted that Jesus' approach to temptation is really as an, as an example for us to follow. So tonight I want to follow up on that just a little bit. It was um, the year 2019, and Time Magazine uh, looked at data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration over a 10-year span. They were measuring traffic accidents involving automobiles and pedestrians and determine the most dangerous intersections in the United States. They actually did it by state, but when it comes to the most dangerous intersection in the United States, where do you think that was? It might surprise you. The magazine identified the intersection of Knights Road and Streets Road in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania. I had to look up where that is. It's actually a northwest suburb of Philadelphia. And um, Gabe Marinelli was raised in Philadelphia, and if you've ever driven with him, you know why it's a dangerous place. 
Okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. But that really was uh, the most dangerous intersection in America. Interestingly enough, they also noted the most dangerous intersection in New Hampshire. They did every state. And you would probably all know this intersection. It was Main Street and Broadway in Salem. The most dangerous intersection in New Hampshire. It's probably before they had all the construction, but nonetheless. Well, life is full of dangerous intersections. There are those unpredictable moments when one small choice or compromise can affect one's entire future. It's a point of decision, a point when temptation and suggestion is made as to which direction I will go, whether to love your spouse or to seek a divorce, whether to use illegal drugs or abuse alcohol, whether to commit immorality outside of marriage or remain pure before God, whether to pass on that juicy bit of gossip or bite your tongue, whether to harbor bitterness in your heart or enact forgiveness and let it go. These are the intersections of life that we face. And it's at those moments that we must make decisions. How will we respond to the temptations that come our way? What is temptation? What is its nature? How are we to deal with it and face it with the truth of God's word? It's unavoidable that all of us face temptation in life. However, the presence of temptation does not mean automatic failure. Just like there are several cars that successfully navigate those dangerous intersections, it is God's intent for us to navigate safely temptation that we face in life. So tonight, I really want to give you six truths about temptation. Six truths that scare some of you, but I promise these will be brief, and they will be quick. You might want to jot these down. Let's just see what the Bible says about temptation, and it'll give us some insight as to how we should manage it as the Lord's people. Six truths concerning temptation. First of all, I want you to note this. Temptation is universal and inevitable. What does that mean? It's universal. Everybody faces temptation. Every single person, every single human being who has ever lived faces temptation. And it's inevitable. It is going to happen. Whenever I use the word temptation, I don't need to explain it because we've all experienced it. And we know what that is like. In fact, temptation is something the Bible says a great deal about. It is a recurring theme in Scripture. There are some notable temptations in the Bible. Can you think of any with me? What are some notable conditions or situations of temptation in the Bible? What was it? Joseph, right? Joseph in the house of Potiphar with Potiphar's wife. That's a notable time of temptation. Anything else? David. David. Uh, at a time when kings go out to battle, remained home, and there with Bathsheba. Any others? The Garden of Eden. 
that not where it all began in Genesis chapter 3? The temptation of Adam and Eve. What about Esau in Genesis 25? Tempted to fulfill his own fleshly appetite in giving up the birthright. What about Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when he saw the fine garments and he decided to hide them in his tent? Judges, uh, I'm sorry, Samson in the book of Judges. Solomon the king. What about Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 5, the servant of Elijah? And what about Peter, his temptation to deny Christ in which he ultimately did? These are notable temptations in the scripture. And if anything, they come to the point to make the point they make is this temptation happens to everybody, no matter your status, your position, no matter your walk with God. Temptation is universal and inevitable. So we're talking about something we're all fully aware of. But secondly, I want you to note this temptation is ultimately diabolical. That's why you have to turn to James chapter one. Look at James chapter one. And notice verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James makes this pretty clear. James says temptation does not originate with God. Now, if you're here this morning, you're thinking, well, how does that coincide with what we saw in Matthew 4, where the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? Well, the word temptation in the Scripture, as it's used here in James, it's the word parasmos. That word, when, when we speak of temptation in English, that word always has a negative connotation. We want to avoid temptation because the, the goal in that is always failure. But the Greek word actually can mean something good or something bad. It can mean like a test, a test to prove the value of something, the good of something. Or it can mean a temptation toward evil. The context will tell you how that word is being used, what sense it should be given. So when you come to the Bible and it says that God often tests people, that is true. Same word. But what is God's purpose in any test? It's not for failure that the person would fail, but it's actually to strengthen their faith or demonstrate to them areas of growth that they need to experience. From God's perspective, it's a positive thing. So when James says God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, what it's saying is in any kind of test, God's goal is never that you fail. You can't attribute that to God. God's goal is that you would be strengthened. God's goal is that, that your faith would be strengthened. That's what we read, obviously, this morning in what we read in Matthew chapter 4. It was the part of preparation for Christ that he would be driven into the wilderness to face the enemy. And he would be victorious. And it was to begin his ministry. So temptation does not originate with God. He tests us to strengthen our faith, but he does not desire that we sin. However, Satan is called the tempter, and from his vantage point, 
Satan's desire is that we would fall. When Satan faced the Lord in the wilderness, his desire was that the Lord would indeed sin. It was his goal to bring him down. Therefore, Satan is called the tempter in this capacity in Matthew 4 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. There are other sources of temptation, our own fallen flesh, even friends that we have, or the world and the world system. But nevertheless, temptation is ultimately diabolical. Thirdly, I want you to note this about temptation. Temptation itself is not sinful. Being tempted is not a sin. Sometimes people really struggle with this. When I used to work with young men in a college setting, they really struggled with this, that the fact that I'm even tempted in certain ways or there's something inside of me that is drawn to disobey God in particular ways, they felt that that in itself was was demoralizing. That in itself was the thing that had to be eradicated. And I had to continually try to help them to see that will never be eradicated until you are glorified in heaven. There will always be something within us, even as a believer in our fallenness, a part of us called the flesh that is easily tempted. And it's not sin when that is is enticed as it were. The sin is when I cooperate with the enticement. Someone has said it well this way. It's no sin to let birds fly over your head. But it's a problem if you let a nest in your hair. And I think that's a good example of that. Everyone is tempted, but temptation itself is not sinful. How do we know this? Jesus was tempted, right? He's the sinless son of God. Yet there was temptation. However, the difference in Jesus' temptation is there was nothing inside of him. There was no fallenness within Jesus that was was appealed to. Nevertheless, he did face a legitimate temptation of Satan to obey what Satan was saying, fall down and worship me. However, we struggle with our fallen sinful flesh. and As a result, oftentimes we're confused and we think, I somehow have to get rid of this even nature in me that wants to do wrong. And only Jesus will get rid of that. And he'll get rid of it when he comes again or when we're glorified in eternity. Until then, it's not a sin to be tempted, but giving in to temptation certainly is. In fact, we know that in the garden... Adam and Eve were tempted, but sin isn't equated with with Adam and Eve until they yielded to temptation. Romans 5 doesn't say that, that sin entered when Adam listened to the devil. No, it says when Adam disobeyed, when he partook of the forbidden fruit, sin entered and death came upon all humanity. So it's no sin to be tempted. However, we should not seek out temptation. We should be aware of its deceit, as we'll note in just a moment. Temptation is certainly an enticement to do evil. But being enticed itself is not sinful. Yielding to that enticement is. 
Fourthly tonight, I want you to note this about temptation. It is deceitful. This is what makes it temptation. Okay? Uh, You're in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 will speak of this. Let's think of just a little bit about the mechanics of temptation. All right? Uh, How is it then that that I am tempted? If you look at James uh, chapter 1, We read in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed. There's the temptation. There's where I'm getting this idea that the Bible talks about temptation as being deceitful. There's an, an element of deceit in it. It's a lie. And I think the term lure here is very good. How many of you are fishermen? You like to fish, right? Maybe you have a whole tackle box of lures. And you're looking for that one that is especially enticing to those fish that you're after. And you're going to go back to that one because the fish are constantly deceived into thinking it's something that they want or need or like. And the moment they go after it, they realize there's a hook in it. And this is the way temptation works. There's a deceitful element that is put before us that demonstrates this is something I must have, this is something I need, this is something that will ultimately satisfy the moment we go after it, there is a lure, there is a hook in it. And notice what James says in verse 14. Each person is tempted like this. When, when the deceit works its way, he's lured in, he's enticed. But what are we enticed by? Notice the end of the verse says, by his own desire. And here's where you really need to be adept at temptation. Did you know that we all have designer lusts? Designer desires. Here's what that means. That means there are certain things that are a temptation for me, but maybe not for you. There are certain things that I need to steer clear of because I know my own desire that you might even think silly or foolish. Because you don't understand that. You don't have that same designer desire that you could be easily persuaded or lured in that particular area. So it behooves us as God's people, if we're all going to face temptation, that we really understand ourselves and what are my designer desires, my own desires that I know are easily fooled. That would be a big step in dealing with temptation. Because temptation is deceitful, and this deceit occurs around those desire desires that we possess. Notice verse 15 in James 1 continues. That desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. And now look at verse 16. The admonition is, don't be what? It's not don't desire. 
because we have desires, it's don't be deceived about those desires. Don't go for the lure. That's where the emphasis is in the scripture with regard to temptation. That when you're faced with temptation, you've got to look at it for what it is. What's the deceit in that? And there's always an element of deceit and temptation. In fact, when we trace it back to the early temptation in the garden, the scheme of the tempter of Satan is to raise doubt in your mind concerning God's truth. This is exactly what Satan did in the garden. Do you remember his, his tactic, his approach when he came to Eve? The first thing he did was to question God's word. Has God really said you shouldn't eat of this tree? He's trying to put this element of doubt in her mind to deceive her about the truthfulness of God's statements. The other thing he did in Genesis chapter 3 is he questioned God's character. Well, the only reason God's withholding that tree is because he knows that when you eat of that, what's going to happen? You're going to become like him. You're going to become like God. And you're going to know good from evil. And God's withholding something good from you. Now, that desire that Eve had in that particular situation wasn't necessarily evil. It was a desire to eat of fruit. The problem was fulfilling that desire in an illegitimate way outside of God's will. But the tempter manipulated the desire to the point that caused her to question the goodness of God's will. The goodness of what he had forbidden. And isn't that the way temptation works? You know, if God really loved me, then I could certainly have this. Because I feel like I really need this. That's the element of temptation. The scheme of the tempter is always to put doubt in your mind concerning God's truth. His own word, his own character. And this is what makes it so deceitful. So whenever you're tempted, you must look for the deceit in the temptation. Look at the truth behind what is being offered and where it leads Fifthly, I want you to note this about temptation tonight. Can you believe this? Temptation can be helpful. What, are you crazy? Who would sign up for that? Well, have you ever asked yourself the question, why is there so much temptation? Why doesn't God just eliminate Satan? If he's the tempter, why doesn't he right now just get rid of him? I mean, at creation, there was no devil. Satan fell sometime after Genesis 1 and before Genesis 3. I mean, God started it out that way. Why, why did he allow that to happen? Why doesn't God just eliminate the devil? Or have you ever thought this? Or why doesn't God just dampen my desires? If I perpetually struggle in this area. Why doesn't God just dampen that? It's almost like what Paul says in Romans 7, right? When he's talking about his, his Christian life, I believe. And he's saying, you know, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this? There's this constant struggle within me. The good that I want to do, I, I find myself not doing. And the evil I really don't want, I find myself doing. And he's wrestling with these desires that are conflicting within. 
Why doesn't God just get rid of that? Why doesn't he dampen our passions that way? Or why doesn't God just rearrange our lives to avoid temptation? I mean, could God have kept Bathsheba off that rooftop while David was walking about? Why didn't God just rearrange it that David never saw her? Well, I think there's three reasons why. One, temptation is God's means of testing and proving our loyalty to him. You cannot truly say you love someone or serve someone or worship someone in God's sake, God's instance, until you've made some hard choices about them. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and do what? Sacrifice him. At the end of that test, God tells Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you love me. It is that test that has brought out of you what I was looking for. God allows us the luxury of difficult choices to prove time and time again our love to him. And think of the wisdom of God in this. Each temptation leaves us in no moral neutrality. It leaves us actually demonstrating our love toward God or it leaves us demonstrating to ourselves that we love something or someone else. And so when you are tempted and you face temptation, think of it this way. Here's another opportunity for me to show God I love him. And I want to be loyal to him. Therefore, temptation is God's character development curriculum. Temptation is God's magnifying glass to show us how much more work we have to do often. Temptation brings out the best and the worst in us. It's just not what we read earlier. We won't take time to look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, that parallel passage that Jesus quotes during his first temptation and God tells his people, the children of Israel, I led you into the wilderness. I allowed you to suffer hunger that I might what? Test you and see what's in your heart. And there it is. It was God's character development curriculum for the people of Israel. He was demonstrating to them what was in their heart, that they might turn from it, that they might grow through this. And God does that for us in temptation as well. Finally, temptation heightens our awareness of our own weakness and our need of God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, Paul says that he received a thorn in the flesh. It might be a physical ailment, might be something else. Either way, it's something Paul really wrestled with. And finally, he says, God gave this to me. I asked God to take it away. It was certainly a test for Paul to see how he would respond to this. And in the end, God says, Paul, I gave this to you for your own good because my strength is perfected in your weakness. And Paul says, this was to humble me. Temptation humbles us. It heightens 
our awareness of our own weakness and our need of God's grace. Remember that frustration we feel? Why am I so tempted? Why are these desires so strong? I wish that they weren't there. Well, that's to humble us. They are. That's who I am. And I need God's grace and I need God's help every single day. It humbles us. Finally, I want you to note this, sixthly, about temptation. Temptation is never too powerful. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Probably a familiar verse to many of you. But it's one, if not, it should be familiar to you. that You should write down and meditate on. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There's our first point about temptation. It's universal and inevitable. It's saying this, temptation, everybody faces it. Don't think somehow your temptation is unique. I mean, everybody else seems fine, but you don't know the temptation that I have. Mine's supercharged. There's nothing I can do about it. And what the Bible is saying, it's removing that possibility. It's saying, we're all tempted. We all face temptation. Don't think you're that special. Sorry to put that to you that way, but that's what it's saying. All right? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What God is saying is temptation is never too powerful. God provides ways for us to avoid sinning in the temptation. How does this happen? How does God help us in temptation to overcome? Number one, temptation can be overcome by the cleansing word of God. Psalm 119.9 says, how shall a young man cleanse his way? It's a question asked. The response is by taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart have I sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hid in my heart that I would not sin against you. The Bible says here's a tool that God has given for us to overcome temptation. Is that not what we saw this morning? In, in the life of the only perfect human being that ever walked the face of the earth, how did he respond to Satan? It is written, it is written, it is written. He took up the sword of the Spirit, as it were. By the way, when Paul uses that phraseology in Ephesians chapter 6, and he's talking about the sword of the Spirit, uh, which is the Word of God, uh, the term word there, there's two terms in your New Testament for word. One of those is logos. That's John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. This is the Word of God, the full revelation of God. It's talking about the whole revelation of God. When, when Paul writes in Ephesians 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, he doesn't use logos. He uses the term rhema. And rhema word has to do not with the larger corpus of revelation. It has to do with specific statements. Specific things within that full word of God. 
And so what he's saying is this, when temptation comes, how do I approach it? I don't wave my Bible at temptation and hit it over the head. I pull out the specific statements of the Word of God that I've treasured up in my mind through memorization and meditation, and it's like the dagger. But if you don't have that in there, God's not going to bring it to your mind. So take up the sword of the Spirit, those explicit statements, just like Jesus did. And wield the sword skillfully in moments of temptation. Do you systematically read God's Word, identifying your own designer lust and those passages of Scripture that particularly identify it and store those things up for the next time you're tempted? Temptation can be overcome by the cleansing word. Temptation can be overcome with the help of fellow believers. Galatians 6.1 says, If anyone is overtaken in sin, you that are spiritual, restore that one in meekness, considering yourself, lest you're also tempted. Don't come at it in a haughty way as a spiritual superior, but you come to them in a helping way. When someone is wrestling with temptation and you're wrestling with temptation, the tendency is to isolate ourselves when we've fallen into sin and feel shame and not want to talk to anybody about it because how could anybody love me because of what I've done? And that's Satan's tactic to isolate you. But the scripture constantly says it's at that moment what you need more than anything is a helpful, believing friend who can help restore you, who can bear that burden with you, help you in dealing with that temptation. Temptation can be overcome with the help of fellow believers in the body of Christ. Finally, some temptations can be avoided through carefully placed standards to maintain purity. There are some temptations that are simply internal and they're always with us. And temptation always works that way. There are internal things. But there are things that I can do from a Christian perspective to place carefully placed standards or boundaries to maintain purity. If I know what my designer desires are, I ought to be wise that I'm not going to places or doing things or being around people that are going to further entice or deceive me regarding the fulfillment of those desires. Job 31.1, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Why should I look upon a young woman? Job says, this is temptation. And what I've decided is that I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes to not go places or put myself in situations where I might sin through my eye gate. He's placing a carefully placed standard in order to maintain purity. That's a wise thing. We ought to recognize where we're weak. We ought to recognize where we might fall and maintain some carefully placed standards in order to avoid falling into temptation and sin. That's a wise thing. Don't flirt with danger. Don't, in a nonchalant way, approach the intersections of life 
carefree without any thought. Temptation is real. But God has told us these six things about temptation to help us overcome. What are they just in review? Temptation is universal and inevitable. It's ultimately diabolical. Itself is not sinful, but it is deceitful. It can be helpful, but it's never too powerful. May God help us to be people that live pure lives in honor of him in dealing with temptation. All right, let's pray together.